0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, as Alan said, we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6 today, verses 4 through 8. However, uh, we are going to spend a lot of the beginning of our message actually looking at Hebrews 1 through 5. Uh, We are going to step back and really take a look at uh, what the writer's been trying to say here from the very, very beginning of his letter. So, kind of in in a a nutshell, I want to give you a little bit of picture. So, this passage here in Hebrews chapter six um, is is pretty controversial for some people. There are some people believe that this passage uh, is indicating that a believer uh, can, who's saved, can actually lose their salvation and then not be um, brought back to salvation, not come back to repentance. Uh, I don't believe that that's what the passage says, but I will tell you that that is out there, uh, and there are people that believe that. There are a few other views, but that's the predominant one besides the fact that what we're going to talk about today, which I think is, is the, the right view, to be honest with you. Um, and so how do we look at things like this to make sure that we are, we are correct in our view of the Scripture? There's two primary tools that we use when we're studying Scripture. One is always making sure that we understand the text in the context of what, who he's writing to or who the author's writing to, and in the context of the, the writing of the book or the letter. So it's making sure that it flows. It's part of it. It's one way that we can understand it. We just don't pluck things out and say, well, this means this. We look at it in the context of something. The second thing, and we're going to do less of this today, but is to make sure that we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. In other words, if the Scripture says something here about this topic, we should look at it for other places and to make sure that it's always pointing to the same thing and there's a consistency. Because if you use Scripture to interpret Scripture, then we're going to make sure that we understand the fullness of what that text says, right? And, and the broader picture of all of Scripture. Um, sometimes when we just look at one thing, we can... We can distracted, really, or um, misunderstand what it means. And so we want to step back and have a broader view of it. And so primarily, though, we're going to use the, the idea of context today more than anything. Um, and so, like I said, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on that. So I want to remind you that Hebrews is, is being written here to a, a group of Jews or Hebrews that Um, have made some profession of faith. They are the church at some level. We're not sure of all the details here, but uh, we know that there are at least some of them that are professing Christians. And so that's been um, a part of who he's writing to. But I want to make the argument today that that really the writer is writing to two groups of people uh, that are present in his his audience. One is a born-again believers, people that have made a profession of faith, that love the Lord. Um, they've professed him. Uh, they, they believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's come, he's died, and, and they, he's writing to them, and he's encouraging them. He's reminding them of some things about who Jesus is and encouraging them. But I think there's another group that he's writing here, and I'm going to show you why I think that here in a little bit. But there's another group of people that are there in the church. They're, they're Jews, so they're, they're familiar with the Old Testament law. They, they know that Jesus um, has claimed probably to be the Messiah. And, and they're deciding, they're, they're weighing, it. well, is he really who he says he is? And, and, and is, if he is, what does that mean for my life? And is he fulfillment? But they, I would argue that they are not been born again yet. They have not been saved, what we would say. Um, they're still considering the claims of Christ, so to speak. And so the author here is, is read, writing to both of these groups. He knows that there's, there's both of these people in his audience as he writes. Okay? And so this week we're going to look at really the, the second group there, those people that, that haven't made a profession of faith that he's really focusing on in these five verses today. Next week we'll look at the other folks that, that maybe have already come to know Christ and the assurance that he's going to give them. But today we're going to look at this, the second group of people. So, what's happening here in the text, just to kind of give you an overview, um, he's going to say that um, there's these people that have experienced things, um, and they've, they've even tasted of the Holy Spirit, as we're going to cover, and that some people think, see, that says that they're believers, and I'm going to say, no, I don't think they are. They're people that have not made that choice yet, but he's cautioning them. In fact, he's warning them that they better be careful. Because if God has revealed all of this to them and they reject him, there's no other way to be saved. That's really what I think the author is trying to do here. It's it's an ominous warning to them, okay? And and I would argue that it should be an ominous warning to us. Because even though this was written some 2,000 years ago, I think the, the hearers of this letter are in the same situations that these people are. Are there people in this group here in our congregation, both the first service and and, and now you guys, that are believers, that are born again, committed Christ followers? Absolutely. Are there maybe some of you that aren't? Yeah, probably. Maybe you're here to to learn, to listen, to to understand, to explore the claims of Christ, to understand who this guy really is and what did God really do and is this really true? And and, and so maybe you're here and you're one of those people and, and that's was, those people were present, and they are present all through history. They always will be. And, and here in the Old Testament, I think, that, or the New Testament, they were, they were there. There was people there that hadn't made that decision yet. So they've experienced things, but yet they're not believers. And yet they have a lot of knowledge. And so that leads me to your big idea this morning. The big idea is really a warning, though. Knowledge and experience without trust and repentance leads to eternal death. Knowledge and experience. And we're going to see that the author is going to make the argument that these people have lots of knowledge, and they've experienced some things, but they haven't placed their trust in Christ, and they haven't really repented and live a life of repentance, of sin in their life. They don't understand that, that Christ has died for it and they've not surrendered their, their will to him. And so my, my point, I think the author is trying, to turn away from your sin it's still going to lead to eternal death. There's only one way of hope here, and it's by turning our lives over to him. And so that's really going to be the the warning that he's going to give us in chapter 6. But we got a long way to go before we get there. And why is that? Because for you to rightly understand chapter 6 and what I'm going to explain about what I think it means, you need to see it, what the author is doing, all the way through the, the, the book here, all the way through the letter. And so we're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to have a high-level view, and we're going to have lots of scriptures. And we're, I just want to show you the mindset of the author, what he's doing, why he's counseling in the way he is, and what he's doing. All right? So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open. I would encourage you to underline some of these things, because if you really want to rightly understand 6, we have to rightly understand 1 through 5. All right, so let's look at chapter 1. First thing is, we're not going to read any of the scripture out of chapter one, but I'll just summarize it for you. It says there in chapter one, the author basically opens up and he says, Jesus is the creator of all things. He is the heir of all things. Everything is his, it belongs to him. He's going to inherit all things. It's all his. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the perfect imprint of the father. He is seated at the right hand of the father in heaven and he is superior to angels. Okay. So the author just comes right out and says, guys, Jesus is it. He is God in the flesh. He's created all things. He's superior to all things. He's the heir of all things. He's greater than angels. He just starts out with like this high level praise of the majesty of God and just tries to declare that to them to the first thing. Now, remember, he's writing to Jews. And so he is, Jesus is the fulfillment. So he's just starting and saying, he is the one that we've been looking for. He is this Messiah that we've been looking for. It's really what chapter one is all about. It really is the thrust of the start of the chapter. Then we get to chapter two. Chapter two, verses one and one through three. He says, therefore, we must pay close, closer attention to what we have heard, right? So uh, just what did we just hear in verse chapter one? We've heard that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the heir of all things, right? He's the radiance, he's greater than angels, he's the radiance of the, the glory of God, he's the exact imprint of the Father. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. He's encouraging them, lest we drift away from it. Now, I want you to, if you've got your Bibles open, you should underline that. Lest we drift away. The author is already now in chapter 2 saying and hinting that just because you know things doesn't mean that you can't drift away from it. That's going to be foundational when we get to chapter 6. Right? Lest you drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, in other words, they said the message, the, the angels proclaimed his coming, he came, It's reliable. Jesus came in the flesh. He was born of a virgin. He's here. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. It's reliable, right? And it came from angels. That message is reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So he's just saying that God is going to judge and it's going to be just. Based on that, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So what the author is saying is, is if we drift away from this, there is no salvation we can't if we neglect this truth if we neglect him the fulfillment there is nothing else Th- this is it and so this is where the warning begins even in chapter two now the rest of chapter two states that jesus is the founder of our salvation and he's become one of us giving himself up for us and to die for our sins. so he's just reminding the jews now that hey Not only did God do this, but he became one of us. He he lived among us. He suffered for us. He dies for us. And so he's just kind of making the argument, don't drift from this. This is what God really has done to build a relationship with us and and come alongside us. And then he's died for us. Chapter 3 starts by stating that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now this this idea that he's kind of tearing down some of the... the, um, you know, you would say the celebrity idol worship uh, of maybe their time, right? That they, they held certain people up maybe higher than they should have. Obviously, Moses was a, a very revered um, patriarch in, in, in Scripture and, and the one that received the law and led them out of Egypt. But ultimately, what, what he's saying is that Jesus is so much greater than Moses. And so we need to get our eyes off of him. We're leaving the old covenant. We're moving into the, to the age of the new covenant, the Messiah, the Savior. And he wants to focus our hearts there is where he starts. But then in verse 7 of chapter 3, 7 through 9, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion. Now, here he's talking about the rebellion that happened in the wilderness when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. We've covered this several weeks ago, right? And they rebelled. They they were led out. They were freed from slavery. Yet, they still wanted to go back, yet they, they wanted to they build a golden calf. They were unhappy. They they didn't like what God was doing. They didn't like what Moses was doing, and they rebelled, right? And so today, he says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He's quoting. He so do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion, right? So even in that statement, he's he's warning them that there's a potential that you could harden your heart here. You, you, you've been, you're a Jew. You've heard what Jesus has done, but You could harden your heart just as the way our ancestors did. It says, on that day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my uh, work for 40 years. Now, you may want to underline, saw my work for 40 years. Because when we get to 6, we're going to see this again. This idea that people experienced what God was doing. They saw him working. They, 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 they saw the deliverance out of Egypt. They saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea split. They walked through it. They saw the manna on the ground. They saw the water come from rock. They, they were fed with quail. They saw all of it. They saw that the, the law was given to Moses. And yet, we're going to see that the writer is going to go and say, but they hardened their hearts and they, they had disbelief and disobedience. It goes on in chapter 3, verses Twelve and thirteen it says, "Take care, brothers, lest there be any in uh, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God." This this idea that he's saying we got to hold on because lest you may fall away. In my life, over the years, I've, I've kind of looked at it this way and, and many times in my life, especially before I was a believer, but I think this is true sometimes even in our walk with Christ. Sometimes um, we hear, we have knowledge, we hear the gospel. Let's say, let's say I'm not a believer. I've not been born again yet. This is true probably for when I was in my teens. And I would hear the gospel, and I would be drawn. I would, I would see God working. I was in a church. I could see the, the Holy Spirit moving. I mean, I could sense that, that God was doing things, and I could see his word, and it was powerful. And sometimes that even, during the worship, I would even be emotional maybe. And, and, and I always felt like he was drawing me, and I was getting closer and closer and closer. And then you get to the prep you know, the prep, preposite, I can't say that word. Um, and, and God wants you to jump now. Right? He's, he's led you all the way here. He's given you everything you need to know Him. And now He says, now, trust me. Come on. Jump. Surrender your life. I think that's what the author's saying. This is where God has brought you. He's given you the Old Testament. You know all these things. Jesus has come. You've got the knowledge, right? And now you're here. Be careful lest you fall away. You don't jump. And I can tell you that's true in my life. I've been there when, before I became a Christian. I'd get all the way to the top of the mountain, I would always say. And then God would say, okay, now it's time, Raleigh, jump. Trust me. And I'd say, no, I can't. Now, why? Oh, there's all sorts of reasons. I, I don't want to give up my life. I, I don't. The cost is too much for me, Lord. I, I don't want to give up those things that I love. My lust, whatever it may be, I don't want to give those things away. The lust for life, or maybe I'm just not sure that you, you are who you say you are. Maybe maybe my knowledge isn't great enough. Maybe I just don't understand enough yet. Usually it's the lust of life, and I just want to back away. I say no. I'll do that later, because you know I want to live first, and then I'll come in later. And then a year later, I'd, I'd come right back to that place again. And and I would, and God would say, here you are again. Come on, now jump. And once again, I would step back. And I think what the author here is trying to communicate to his listeners is that, look, if you keep doing that, there's going to be a moment when you come back that you won't go back up there. That your heart is going to be so hard and so cold that you will not go back there. You will not want that anymore because you have rejected it. You've seen it. He's brought you to the very precipice, and he's shown you all of it. And you've stepped away and said, no, not now. And at some point our heart gets hard. I think that's where the author is trying to warn them. He always talks about this idea of falling away. Yet they understood. They saw what God was doing, right? Take care, brothers, lest any of you have an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Like We get there, but then we fall back. We don't push in. We don't step out in faith and trust him. Because notice what the next verse there, 13, says. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think what the author is saying is, look, we know that, that people get to this place. And as believers, we need to encourage them. We need to be surrounding them. We need to be there for them to help them say, yes, it is right, it is good, I'm here. Make that commitment, surrender your life. We will be there with you. Exhort one another and strengthen. And that's true for us as believers because I believe that even in our Christian walk at times, we can get to this place where where God is working in us and he calls us to certain points in our life where he brings us to a place and he says, now I want you to trust me in this thing in your life and I want you to just move in in faith and we fall back. So it happens in our Christian walk as well. And I think the author is just speaking to both of them in this way. And then we see in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, it says, So we see that we were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, who's he referencing there? Now, he's still talking about the people that were delivered from Egypt. They were spent years in the wilderness. They had the knowledge of the 40 years, but they weren't able to enter the promised land or to, to enter God's rest. That's a picture. Of unbelief and not entering into the Sabbath, not entering into heaven, not having salvation. Now we know Moses did, Joshua, Michaela, and many others that were younger, but the picture here is that many will not enter into God's rest because of unbelief. They will have fallen back, even though they witnessed everything in the wilderness. They witnessed the deliverance out of Egypt and the the man and the feeding of all those people, millions of people, and yet they fall away and they were unable to enter. Because of unbelief. So now the author is, is reminding them of their ancestors. Why? Because he's getting ready in 6 to say, you are very, some of you are in that same place. You've, you've seen it. You've, you've tasted it. And yet, your hearts are not where they need to be. And you're, you're, you're hedging whether you're going to move in or fall away. And so here we go on to chapter 4. Four opens with reminding us that the promise of salvation is still available, and the author now says, "But, but even though that's true, that some of you are that way, the offer of salvation is still available to you. He still wants you to come forward. He still wants you to trust him and jump. It's, it's still there, right?" So now you see, he's, he's telling them to be worried or be, there's a warning here that you need to do this. So now he's putting out the olive branch and said, but do this. Like it's time. It's good. It's right. Jesus has fulfilled it. The offer of salvation is still there. And then what's, what do we see here in 4.1 and 2? It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, still available. That's true for us today. It's still available. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have fallen, failed to reach it. Now, notice this next line. For good news came to us just as to them. They've received, you'll hear this in chapter 6, they've received good news. They've received knowledge, right? But the message they heard did not benefit them. And why didn't it? Because they were not unified by faith with those who listened. They did not believe. They did not have faith and trust in the message or the messenger. They did not trust in Christ. And so he's he's reminding them of their ancestors. Because when he gets to six, he's just going to say, now, if that's all true and you're here, I want you to understand that there may not be hope for you if you reject him. Or there will be no hope if you reject reject him. Chapter 4, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, he's saying, look, if the door's not closed, some are still coming, the door is open, right? And those who formerly received good news, so they they were enlightened, they they had the good news, they understood the good news, failed to enter because of disobedience. He's just kind of painting the picture for them. They didn't enter because of disobedience. So he said, because really what he's going to tell them in 6, he says, you have the good news, you've been enlightened, and you haven't entered. In fact, you keep falling away. You keep pulling back. you just keep pulling back. Chapter 4 ends with reminding us that Jesus is our great high priest. Now, he, he, he goes back and he reminds them that, and to encourage them, he says, look, he's our great high priest. He's, he's become uh, our great high priest. He has went through the, the veil. He has went through, and, and he is the offering. He is the, the sacrificial lamb for us, right? We jump to chapter 5, verse 9. It says it being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In other words, he's just saying that Jesus is, is, is the perfect Lamb of God. He, he is the one, he is the author of our salvation here. He is perfect. He's the source of our eternal salvation. So the author now is just reminding them: don't turn away from this. This is true. He is it. He is it. You know, as I'm walking through this, and so I walked through first service. It it really is how I feel many times on Sunday morning, or when I'm talking to people in witnessing or counseling. I just I want to say he's it. Like, you ever been there? Like, you just to talk to your kids or a relative or a friend or a coworker, and you just you, you see the truth, you know the truth, you, you've, you, you are a believer, and, and, and you just want to help them see it. And, and you say, this, he is it. I think that's really what the author is doing here. He's just pouring his heart out and says he is it. I, I see him. He's fulfilled it all, right? But what does he say then in verse 11 of chapter 5? About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. There's this frustration in the author now. And this, this idea of dull of hearing, it's this apathy. This really, you know, I, it's in one ear and out the other. Yep, I understand. And I, I sometimes wonder, I mean, sometimes I think that, that explains a lot of the Western church sometimes. We're apathetic to what God has done. We've heard it from Sunday school on, and Jesus came, he died, yada, 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 I'm saved, good, you know. Man, that is a dangerous place. If God really came a man and died some 2,000 years ago, and said, I'm the only way to eternal life, and I want you to worship me, and I want you to live holy before me, and we are apathetic to that, and we say, ah, you know, I don't, I don't know really know about that. I mean, I, I go to church, but I don't really read the Bible, that's not really necessary. I, I got baptized when I was 10, and I'm good. I just live my life. I'm a good person. I think God's saying, no, no, that's, you're in danger. You're in danger. That's not, that's not what salvation looks like. That's, that's not what it means to be saved. That, now, I'm not saying we will live perfectly. We will not live perfect lives. But, but we should have a holiness about ourselves as believers. We should be growing in holiness. We are, we are saved, but we are saved not just to escape the wrath of God. We're we're, we're born again to be able to live holy before him, to live a righteous, holy life, to glorify him, to be a witness for him. And if we just say, well, I'm, I'm just doing this for myself, then that is not true salvation, I don't believe. And he's wrestling with these people. They become dull of hearing. He goes on then in verse 12, he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. You need milk and not solid food. He's just, he's just reminding them all. Now, some of these may be believers that are young believers, and he's challenging them to, to really dig in and to know more. Some of these people may be saying, well, I'm not there yet. And he's saying, no, you, you need to learn. You need to realize who God is. You need to take the next step in your faith. You need to surrender your life. So this is how we get to six. Now, this is not our passage yet because we're not going to get to our passage until verse 4. But here's verses 1 through 3 that Brian taught on a couple weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 6, 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead, of dead works, the faith and, and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits now, all those things he's just listed there are Old Testament things. And so what he's saying is, he says, we need to leave those things. We need to move in to what God is doing now. You can't stay there. There's no life there, right? You need to leave that. They are doctrines of Christ because they were all pointing to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, right? Not laying the foundation of repentance from dead works. He's saying, works don't save us. We were told to, be, to live good and that we should have good works, and we have, but, but move on from that. Dead works don't save us. Being good is not going to save you, right? Not going to do it. It's not how God is working. And of faith towards God. He's saying, are we supposed to leave our faith towards God? No, I think what the author is saying is just, we need to move past that God is just the Father, that everything is just about the Father. Jesus has come. We know the. We get to access to the Father through Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us, and we get access to the Holy of Holies, to before the the throne of God through Jesus. So move on from just faith towards God. There's more here. Move out of that. And instructions about washings. Washings were, were this idea that you had to be ceremonially clean. And so there was all types of washings. And, and the priest did washings. And if you sinned, there were was certain washings you did. Right? It's not, It's it's. you could say it's a little foreshadowing to a baptism, but it is not baptism here. It's about ceremonial washings. And the laying on of hands. Now, when we think of laying on the hands in, in today's church, we think about praying for people and laying hands on people. And that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the laying on of hands. Remember when we talked about several weeks ago where the, where the, you would bring an animal, whether the priest would do it on the Day of Atonement or at certain times we would bring a sin offering or a, a burnt offering and we would, the people would lay their hands on the animal, the laying on of hands, and then we transfer our sin symbolically to the animal and the animal gets killed and gets sacrificed, right? He's saying, move on from that. that that's, that's the Old Testament. It's, it's not going to do you any good now. We've got to get past the laying on of hands. And the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And, and I think he's speaking probably to the Pharisees here because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not, but the Pharisees did. And, and this eternal judgment. He's saying, no, oh, we, we need to move on. Those are, those are things that, yes, we know, but the, but, but the Messiah has come, right? And this we will do if God permits. Here, here the author of Hebrews is saying, look, we are fully dependent upon God to be working in us. We we can't do these things. We can't come to know Him if God doesn't permit it. Right? He is sovereign over all of this. And so here in the first five chapters, getting into six, He's been painting this picture and speaking to a group of people and warning them about what it looks like to have knowledge and experience, but no trust and repentance in Christ. So here we get to our text, Hebrews chapter four or chapter six, verses four through through Six, right now, we're going to look at the first two verses, three verses. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. What's the thrust of that? And then we're going to tear into that scripture. He's saying... There's, there's, there's something happening here. There's a people. It's impossible to do something. That's really, really first he starts out. He says, what I'm getting ready to tell you, there's an impossibility here, right? Now, I, I want to I clarify something. Anyone who comes to repentance and trusts in God will be saved. God does not keep people from trusting in him and repenting. Anyone who does that there's no, there's no place where God says, no, I'm not going to let you do that. No, if you have a broken heart and you want to repent and turn away from your sin and confess Christ as Lord and Savior, you will be saved. There's, there's that's that hope there always, Amen. right? That's there. But I think he's saying it's impossible, and then I'll kind of lead you to why. But I first want to kind of show you, this is now we're talking about how we let Scripture interpret Scripture a little bit. I just want to define this word impossible. It, it really is exactly what it says it is. I just want to remind you how impossible that the author is saying it is. This word has been used four times here in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it says, it is impossible for God to lie. I think we would agree that's impossible. Amen. Chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Killing an animal is not going to take care of your sins. It's impossible. It's never going to work. It was a shadow and a foreshadowing and an image of Christ. But killing a bull or a goat is not going to take away our sins. It is impossible for that to work. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without believing, without trusting in him, we cannot please God. It is impossible. We, we, can't, we can't kill animals. We can't do good works. We, we can't attend church enough. We can't give enough money. It is impossible. Without faith, without trusting, without believing, without turning from our sin and repentance, it is impossible to please God. And so all of those things, I'm just trying to make the argument here that what this author is saying is, is that what he's getting ready to say is impossible. It's really impossible, right? Right? For it is impossible in the case of those. Who are those? Right? Who are those? He's he's looking for a specific group of people. He's addressing a certain group of people. He's not addressing everyone. For those, and then he's going to list five things that these people do. And it's going to be impossible for them to come to repentance. Not because God is not going to let them. It's because their hearts are going to be so hard and so cold, they're not going to want to. They're just going to be numb to it all. They're not going to want to. So let's take a look at that. Who are those? The first one it says in the text there. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been, once been enlightened. Enlightened. Now that, that word is the same in Greek as it is in English. It's to illuminate. It's to, um, to make, to give an understanding, right? It said, first service I said, you know, Um, we can have knowledge of something, but not be the partaker of it, not have an ownership of it. So I I could have the knowledge of, you know, if you told me today that Chipotle was having a two-for-one special, um, I would have the knowledge of that. I would be enlightened about that. But I wouldn't have it, would I? Not unless I went there. Not unless I acted upon it. So it is possible to be enlightened. In fact, you can see that as we went through those first five chapters, there was many places in all of that that the author was saying they had the knowledge, they saw God do things, but they didn't believe. They didn't partake it. They didn't trust it. And so I can, I can have the knowledge that that two-for-one special is there, but I need to go and I need to act upon it. And so this idea here that, that some people would argue, well, see, it says we, this idea that we are enlightened means that these people are saved, they're Christians. No, that's not what that means at all. I would argue that the point is that enlightenment means to give understanding, not salvation. It's the idea that it gives an understanding of what salvation may look like, how we can have salvation, but it is not salvation. The fact that we're enlightened just means that we're illuminated to the truth. I would argue that many people come into churches every Sunday and and are enlightened by the Word of God. They're told how to experience a relationship with Christ. They're they're told about their sin and and repentance and and how they can turn away and how God loves them and how he's died for them. But they are not partakers of it. They have rejected it at this point still. They've not decided to, to jump. They've got to the place. They've, they have the knowledge of it all, but they've decided not to step forward in faith. And that's really, I think, what he's talking about here. He says, you've been enlightened. You have the Old Testament. You've been enlightened about it all. We've told you about who Jesus is. I've told you that he's greater than angels, that he's superior to Moses. I've told you that he's the founder of our faith. I've told you all these things. You've been enlightened by it. But then he goes on. You've been enlightened then he says, who have tasted the heavenly gift? Okay, this tasted of the heavenly gift. This idea of tasted is this idea of trying something. It's, it's experiencing something. We've tasted it. It's a heavenly gift. It's, it's something wonderful. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, you know, on a very, obviously, a very totally different scale. I could go back to saying, you know, if you allowed me to, to have a bite of a, a burrito, of a Chipotle burrito... I would, I would love to taste it, but it's not mine. I've tasted it. I'm, I'm tasting it. I'm, I'm, I'm dipping in. I'm, I'm, I'm just getting a taste of it, but it's not mine. I haven't decided to, to buy it. I haven't decided to have ownership of it. Why? Because it's going to cost me something. And why we say salvation is free, that is true, but it, it we have to give our life away. We have to decide that we want to surrender to that. And, and maybe we get to that place, we get to the, the, preface, you know, the place and we say, hey, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to give my life away. I'm not, I want what I want. I don't want to do that. And so we fall back. We fall away. And I think that's what he's saying here. He says, you've had all of this. I've shown you all of this. And you've even tasted it. You've been so close to it. You've tasted it. And it's been heavenly. And who is this, I think, that this heavenly gift, I think this is talking about salvation in Jesus. I, I can't specifically say that i can go to places in text and talks about a gift i think this idea of the gift is is salvation is christ himself I can't, but I, I can't argue that dogma dogmatically but this idea that you've tasted him i've told you about him you've seen what he's done you've heard the stories of what he's done you've, you've experienced him in the old testament you've seen it you've seen the fulfillment of things you've tasted him and so what's the point here is that tasting is temporary Tasting is temporary. It is not, it is, is, is not permanent. And, and so if someone wants to argue that this is talking about salvation, then it's not about tasting. It's about taking ownership of it. It's about consuming it all. And that's not what the author is saying here. But then he goes on. He says, and shared in the Holy Spirit. So people say, see, now that clearly means they're a believer because they've got the Holy Spirit. I say, no, that's not what the Bible says. It says they shared in the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. Does the Holy Spirit come in contact and work in unbelievers? Yes. Say, how does that work? Conviction. I can tell you that people that do not know Christ experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit at times. There's an inner sense that I'm not supposed to do that. There's there's this working that I know that that's not right. It's wrong. It's it's abhorrent. I shouldn't do it. I, I know I shouldn't. I believe that at some level that is the Holy Spirit working. We share in the Holy Spirit. Revelation. I think creation, Romans 1 says that the created world, we see it. I think somehow the Holy Spirit is revealing that to us. I think that even when we read Scripture, there's moments where, where God is revealing the Holy, through the Holy Spirit the truth of Scripture to us. We're not, we're not saved. We're not born-again believers. We don't have the Holy Spirit in us, but the Holy Spirit is working to show us who He is, to, to show us that we sh- should know Him and that we should come to surrender our life. But yet we don't have the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's that possession again. I don't have it. I don't, I'm not a partaker of it. It's not, it's not in me. And so where do we see that? Well, First, I just want to share that Share does not mean sealed with. So this idea that we're sharing in the Holy Spirit doesn't mean we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We see this sealing that Paul references in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, see the knowledge here now. Now they respond differently, right? They heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. There's this, this step forward, this act of faith now. They come, they have the knowledge, and they take a step. They trust Him, right? That's what we see here in the text, right? And then what? You believed in it, and we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, and it dwells in us, and we're sealed for a day of salvation. It's, it, we're His. We are partakers of the Holy Spirit completely. Here, the author, though, is saying, we share in the Holy Spirit. We share all right, number four. So not only is he enlightened, I think it's to give an understanding, not salvation. Tasting is temporary. It is not ownership. Shared does not mean sealed with the Holy Spirit. It just means that we've seen and the Holy Spirit work in us or in circumstances around us. Number four, tasted the goodness of the word of God. So these people, this group, those he's talking about, have tasted the word of God the goodness of the Word of God. I can tell you that when I was an unbeliever, I tasted the goodness of the Word of God. I, man, I, I could, like I said, we could be sitting in a, a service and somebody would be preaching and I'm like, man, that is amazing. That is true. That doesn't mean that I'm, that doesn't mean I'm saved. That doesn't mean I'm born again. That doesn't mean I, I've accepted Christ into my life. I've turned my life over. But I've tasted it. It means that the, the beauty and the trustworthiness of of the Word of God. Absolutely. In fact, I think it's so humorous. There's, there's people that don't even know Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus. Actually, they quote, sometimes poorly, they quote Scripture because it's such an awesome thing to do. It's, it's right and true, and, and they, they know it. And so they do it. They're tasting it, right? They're, they're sampling of it. Every Sunday morning, there are people that sit in church services, and, and they're tasting the goodness of the Word of God. It's being preached, it's, it's, it's moving them. Now, maybe it's, not, it's moving them forward to this moment where they, God wants them to just surrender their life, and they may fall away, but they're being moved by it. They're tasting it. And number five, it says, and the powers of the age to come. Okay, how are they experiencing the powers of the age to come? I think this is, is directly meaning miracles and um, healings and the resurrection. Why? Because they're experiencing either these things firsthand. Or they're experiencing them in the scriptures. and For us, obviously, we're experiencing them in the scriptures. But these, these folks, they, they knew about the miracles. Maybe some of them had seen the miracles of Jesus. Maybe they, they saw Jesus resurrected. We don't know, but they definitely heard that he was resurrected. And, and all of the author is saying this is, you've experienced the powers of the age to come. and then second coming, there will be resurrection. You've experienced it. You've heard about it. You've tasted even that. So what is the author saying? He says, look, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted it, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, those who have tasted the goodness of of the heavenly gift, those that have experienced the word of God and those that have come and, and seen the powers of the end of the age. If you've had all of that and you get all the way to that place and God says, I've showed you everything who I am, I've given you all of this to help you... Decide to come and give your life away to me. And you look at all that and you say, No. I'm not going to do that. The author is saying that it's impossible for you to come to repentance because there is no more. Beyond that, there is no more. If your heart is that hard after all of that, it's not that God is keeping you from it. I mean, read Romans 1. Their hearts, they, they knew the truth, and they denied it. They knew. I mean, think about that. You know people in your life probably that know Scripture, that know what the gospel is, and they are rejecting it. And at some point, what God is saying is, you will harden your heart so bad, like your ancestors in the wilderness, that you will not come to Repentance. I think about two individuals and one's a group of people here in the New Testament that this kind of fits with. And we could pick lots of people, even people today, but staying in Scripture. Judas. Did Judas not experience all those things? I mean, he was with the Messiah, Jesus, for three years Saw every miracle, saw the raising of the dead, the the, the teaching of the word of God, the the goodness of the word of God from Jesus' own lips. Do you think he tasted the Holy Spirit when miracles were happening? When they were in fellowship with one another? And what did Jesus, I mean, what did Judas do? He fell back. He resisted it. I'm not going to go there. I have another way. I want my own life. I want to do my own thing. I don't know what was in his heart. Who's another group, though? The Pharisees. The Pharisees had it all. They, they knew the Old Testament. They were the educated class. They had the knowledge. They'd experienced the great goodness of all that God had for them in the scriptures. Jesus comes and He appears to them. He, they're present for many of these miracles. He does all of these things in front of them to show them who he is. We just went through the Gospel of John over the last year and Jesus is clearly demonstrating miracle after miracle before them. Healing lame people, right? Healing blind people and deaf people. Raising people from the dead. Feeding thousands of people. turning water into wine. Doing all of these things. And what does the Pharisees say? No. No. I don't want you. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that's where we are with people. The heart is hard. I want to read that once again. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Now think about it in all that light. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What what, what is he saying there? If you reject everything that Christ has doing and done and fulfilling and who He is, then you're basically saying, I don't want you. I agree that you should be crucified. Right? Because that's what they said. Jesus had given, shared all of this with them. And what did the crowd say? Crucify him. I don't want him. I don't want him. That's what the Pharisees were telling them. That's what the Pharisees' hearts were. We don't want him. We want to be in charge. We want our life. We want our own way of doing things. We don't want you. Crucify him. And what the author here is just saying, this is, look, if you've had all of that and you come to the place and you reject Christ, basically what you're doing is, if you reject Christ, you stand with those who crucified Him. I know that you say, well, that's hard. Yeah, I know. But I mean, you're either for Him or you're not. You're against Him. There's no middle ground in our walk with Christ. You say, what about these people? What And I'm just saying at the very core of of the theological doctrine of Christianity and our relationship with Christ, either you're for him and you surrender your life to him or you're against him, which means that you just would rather say, crucify him, I don't want him telling me what to do. If you reject Christ, you stand with those who crucified him. That's a heavy heavy thing. Verse 7 and 8 describes two types of people I believe. And we'll tell them apart by um, what they produce. And So here now the author is kind of telling and kind of giving a a word picture about what he's just talked about. He's trying to help them understand what he has just said. Verse 7 and 8. It says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for the sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. All right, let me kind of pull that apart for you. For the land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it. The land is us. It often falls. The rain is the goodness and the the mercy of God, the grace of God. It's falling on us all the time. And what does it say there? It falls often on it. God's goodness is falling on us often. Even as unbelievers, it falls on. What what scriptures say, it rains on the just and the unjust. The goodness of God, the glory of God is available and falling on all of us all the time. I should say frequently. That's That's what the text shares. It says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful... Right? So something good is being coming out of all of this, the, the goodness that's coming into us, and something good is coming out of it, something healthy is coming out of it to those who for the sake it is cultivated. And then there's this idea that we cultivate it. We get in and we work with what God is doing us. We see it, we take it in, we, we apply it in our life, it begins to change us and, and grow us, right? We're growing up and, and we're using these things and putting them things into practice. And it's it's a blessing then from God. It, we, we grow up in our faith. We, it's a blessing. We're a blessing to our to our spouses, to our children. We're a blessing to our communities. We're a blessing to, to, you know, we're witnesses. We're salt and light in the world. If we drink it in and we cultivate it and we use it for the purposes that God does, if we surrender to it. He's just painting a picture here of a, of a faithful person, and that's what we're going to look at next week. But then what does he say here? Because now he's this, this last line is really going back to these people that I think he's, he's talking to primarily, he's directing it to. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in its end is to be burned. So he's saying, look, if it's only going to produce thorns and thistles, and where do we see that reference? We see that in Genesis. We see that because of the curse, it, the, the world is just going to bear thorns and thistles on its own. That's what it's going to do. Without Christ, that's, that's all that it's going to yield. And he says, if that's all your life is producing, if it's just thorns and thistles, it's just just, just yourself and your lust and your pride and, and all of the selfishness that goes along with worldliness, if that's all that it's producing, it's not valuable. The farmer doesn't want it. There's no use to it, right? It's, it's Near to being cursed. In other words, it's soon to be taken out. It's, it's producing that, and it's soon to be cursed. Like, it's going to be done. And it says what? It's to be burned. It's to be, it's to be cleared and burned. Where do we see this again in Scripture? We see it in Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 7. Jesus references, this. says, you know, if you, you have a tree and it, it doesn't bear fruit, or it doesn't bear good fruit, what, do you, what does he say? You cut it down and you burn it. There, there's not any neutral ground here. Either you're producing good fruit or you're not. And if you're not producing, you're producing thorns and thistles. There's no point. So what would I make my statement about this is the rain falls on everyone. What matters is how we respond to it. The rain falls on everyone. And what matters is how we respond to the goodness of God, the grace of God. Are we responding once again, go back to Israel, go back to the delivering out of the promised land, the goodness rained on them. They were delivered. They were fed every day. And given water and given manna, it was raining on them figuratively every day. And yet they rejected it. And so they weren't able to enter the promised land. They weren't able to enter his rest. The writer in Hebrews chapter 10 says this, it says in verse 26 and 27, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So here in chapter 10, he's just kind of wrapping it up, even though we're in six here. He's saying, look, if you keep sinning willfully, Wantingly, knowingly, you've rejected him. Yes, we're not going to be perfect, but if your life is a constant, willful, sinful desires, and you have no desire for repentance, you have no desire to turn away from that, you have no desire for him, you have no love for him, you just want to live for yourself. But yet you, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. You know the truth. It's back to Romans 1. They knew the truth, but yet they denied it. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Like, that's it. Like, there it was. You can have it. Now it's gone. Because if, if you reject that, there is nothing else. But what is there? What is left? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is just being crystal clear with these people of the risk of the warning of coming to the knowledge of Christ and then walking away. And I think that's true for every one of us today. I think that word is true for us. I think it's a good word for us today. I would encourage you to read Matthew chapter 13, verses 4 through 9. I think it's consistent with what Jesus says in the parable of the sower. Some was sowed on the path and the rocks and it never, the birds picked it up. And some was sowed in, you know, the soil and and it was not good soil and, and it sprang up but the world choked it out and some was sown on thorns and it was choked out and some was sown in good soil and it produced and some produced more than others and I think this whole thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying here fits exactly with what Jesus says in the parable there so as we close out I have two questions for you what are you producing? what is your life Producing. You're the land, the goodness of God, the rain is poured on you consistently and regularly. Is your life producing a useful crop? Are Are you producing things of goodness and integrity and righteousness in Christ and and a desire to know Him more? And are you teaching your God's statutes to your children? Is is that the thing that is producing in you is it producing a character in you that stands out beyond all others is it is it is it people look at you and say oh my gosh they stand out they're different than the world like like they're different they they gave money back and they got too much change and and that people nobody does that I mean nobody takes money under the everybody takes money under the table to work no they don't do that either And, and boy I see how they treat their husband or their children or I see how they treat their parents they're just different is that what you're producing are you producing thistles and thorns? Are you producing negative s- gossip, slander? Is your heart evil? Do you want things? Do you love your sin? Are you just selfish? Are you lustful after all sorts of things? Are you, are you living in willful sin and don't really care? You can answer that. I can't. What are you producing? Question number two. Has your knowledge of Christ led you to trust and repentance? Because see, you can have the knowledge and it not lead you to trust and repentance. It will lead you there. It will point you there. But you have to go there. You have to go and, and partake it. You have to go and step into it. You have to say, yes, I don't, I don't love my sin. I hate my sin. And I'm gonna turn away from my sin. And I'm gonna trust in the work of Christ. I'm gonna put my trust there. I'm not gonna put it in in my money. I'm not gonna put it in my my relationships. I'm not gonna put it in the world. I'm not gonna put it in any place like that. I'm not gonna put it in the government. I'm gonna put my trust in Christ. But see, knowledge doesn't always lead us that direction. It didn't lead them there. They had the knowledge. They saw the miracles They got all the way to the edge and decided to fall back. And so I'm just asking you to take a look at that and say, when you come to the edge, whether you're a Christian and you're coming to the edge in your walk with Christ, or whether you've never accepted Christ, you've never been born again, and you've gotten to the edge, and you have the knowledge, because even if you're here today at some level and you've never heard the gospel, you've heard it today. And I would just ask you, what is that knowledge of Christ doing? Is it leading you to repentance? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you for the book of Hebrews and what you've explained to us for a couple thousand years here. Just reminds us that we are broken and we need you. That our hearts are hard. We constantly seek after the world. Father, we you've revealed and enlightened us of the gospel. You've helped us taste the the gift, the beautiful heavenly gift of Christ in His death and resurrection. We've shared in the Holy Spirit here as we we have fellowship together, as we we sing and as we praise and pray with each other and, and praise you for who you are. Father, we see all those things. We've tasted and we've shared in them. But yet, Like in any congregation, there are people here and among us that have yet to be a partaker of that and believe and have faith and be born again. And Father, I just pray that their hearts will, you will not allow their hearts to get hard. While they may have fallen away, Lord, I trust that you will just draw them. Help them not to get to the place where their heart is so hard they will not come to repentance any longer. Father, we trust you. We know that it is you that must work in our hearts. We pray that you will do that as we taste the goodness of your word on a regular basis. May it transform us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net have a blessed day